Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. Um, all right, so if uh, without further ado, I think we will put my slides up for our Journal Club 19 and go ahead and get started. Okay, um, the article that I selected to talk about today is actually a case review. And it was published in the journal Medicine in uh, January 2020. The title of it is Heparin-Free Venovenous ECMO in Multiple Trauma Patients. It's by um, Dr. Lee and his colleagues. Well, there we go. Okay, so let me just tell you um, a little bit about this article. I'll read you some of the abstract. So this is a case report, uh, and it's looking at a 17-year-old multiple trauma, uh, multiple trauma patient um, who was uh, presented in the ER, um, went into respiratory failure, and uh, they decided to initiate ECMO. And we'll go ahead and just kind of get started here. Okay, the reason why this paper was published, obviously it's a case study, uh, an interesting one at that. The problems that we're going to solve, we're just going to discuss uh, how this patient presented and what they did to treat her. And we'll go ahead and get started with the case presentation for our hows and methods and procedures. So this is a 17-year-old female. Um, 160 centimeters, 48 kilograms, BMI of 18.75. She was admitted through the ER for, um, for a motorcycle accident. She was um, drunk and had a confused mental state. She had multiple fractures, um, left femur, right pelvis, uh, both mandibles, multiple right ribs, and a tooth. Uh, she had a severe right lung contusion several uh, scalp lacerations, and uh, she had an injury severity score of 34, which I'm not real familiar with that scoring, but it was graded as severe. Okay. Initial vital signs, uh, blood pressure 98 over 60, heart rate 118, respiratory rate 38, and with a 98% saturation on room air. Shortly after being admitted to the ER, um, she had a sudden drop in her saturations to 85%. She was intubated on PRVC, uh, tidal volumes of 350, FiO2 40%, uh, respiratory rate 14 with a PEEP of 7. She also had a right-sided chest tube inserted. Okay, our, um, the, the authors talk a little bit about... Um, ECMO contraindications for respiratory failure. And since we talk about ECMO so much, I thought it would be good to go ahead and just have a look at what they listed as contraindications. So they only had one absolute um, contraindication, and that was for severe irreversible respiratory failure. Um, and then they had several relative contraindications. The prolonged use of high-pressure ventilation or high FiO2 limited vascular access, um, contraindications uh, for using anticoagulation that would be necessary for ECMO, 
The presence of disease or organ dysfunction, such as irreversible brain injury or untreatable cancer, um, inability to receive, receive blood products, high um, BMI greater than 45 is the parameter that they used, and then any major immunosuppression. Okay, and then they um, talked about that there uh, is various ECMO criteria for respiratory failure. Now, these are typically used in ICUs, um, but these are the four that they listed um, for the parameters that they were looking at. So they had a PaO2, um, FiO2 PF ratio of less than 100, FiO2 of uh, greater than 90%, despite having optimal, optimal care for six hours or more, a PF ratio of less than 80 with a PEEP 15 to 20, um, hypercapnia with high plateau pressures of greater than 30, and a pH of 7.15. The third um, criteria, PF ratio of less than 50 with FiO2 greater than 80% for greater than three hours, or a PF ratio less than 80 for six hours with a pH of seven, uh, less than 7.25 for six hours despite optimal um, ventilation. Okay, here's their, VA, uh, their VV ECMO application uh, for this patient. This patient had cardiac arrest due to severe acute respiratory failure, massive pulmonary edema, edema during general anesthesia. Despite um, returning to uh, normal circulation, spontaneous circulation, uh, after 45 minutes of CPR, still she had severe hypoxemia with um, a PaO2 of 31, hypercapnia of uh, PCO2 of 115, acidosis with a pH of 6.81. She had continuous large amounts of pink, frothy, watery secretions from the ET tube. Um, BV ECMO was initiated to prevent recurrence of cardiac arrest. ECMO support, and this is, I thought was interesting, they used it as um, eCPR. Now, we've talked about eCPR before, and normally that's a witness cardiac arrest, um, and tra traditionally it's going to be VA ECMO, but because they were anticipating that she might have cardiac arrest again, they went ahead and put her on ECMO, and they thought, um, they described it as an application of eCPR. Okay, here's just some of her labs, and if you'll look in the um, first column, that would be um, initially uh, when they had anesthesia. The uh, second column is after they started the operation because they did have to take her to the operating room to start trying to repair uh, the multiple fractures that she had. She had a great amount of bleeding. Then you can see the third columns once they started CPR, CPR after 20 minutes when she had spontaneous uh, return to normal circulation, and then after on ECMO. Okay, so the author's conclusions. 
Heparin-free VV ECMO can be used as a resuscitative therapy in multiple trauma patients with clinical respiratory failure accompanied by coagulopathy. Even in cases in which life-threatening hypoxemia and severe hypercapnia and acidosis last for greater than one hour during CPR for cardiac arrest, VV ECMO could be considered a potential life-saving treatment. Um, I didn't really go into the detail of why they didn't want to use heparin, but it was because she was bleeding so much. Uh, she had major coagulopathies going on. She, they reported um, an ACT of over 500. Um, she was put on the VV ECMO, um, maintained that support for three days, was able to um, be successfully decannulated, and then remained in the ICU um, for an additional week and um, fully recovered with no apparent um, neurologic deficit. Okay, that's the article. So, John, what wow, do you think? That's a, that's a great case, and it just goes to show you uh, when you have youth on your side, yes. uh, what can happen. And we actually use that, um, that mindset a lot at our institution, and I don't mean for people this young, but even people, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, I and mean, we consider age to be a big asset, even mm -hmm. in those in those in those decade groups, you know. And and there is, you can see, uh, huge. Uh, they just have something big on their side when they when yeah. they have, uh, you know, a, a younger younger age a young, younger age group. They just they just are able to overcome uh, so many things that are thrown at them. That as you get older and older. You seem to not be able to, and you seem to fall into more complications as opposed to recovering from the problems you, you do have. So that's a remarkable testimony to that, and we definitely subscribe to that. I was wondering if you could go back to mm -hmm. some of your very early slides. I wanted sure. to see if we could follow this case through step-by-step step sure. closer because um, it was a very uh, good uh, way you outlined everything, and I wanted to see how what 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 transpired and what she fell into as far as their category for uh, doing it and and not doing it. I mean, certainly at her age, there wasn't too much that was going to eliminate them from trying that right. hardly at all. In fact, okay, uh, so let me let me go pull back the slides up the, again real quick, David. Uh, and I'm gonna... First or second slides where you start to um, talk about. Let's see, yeah, pretty pretty much near the beginning. I think it was the second slide. This one? Okay, so she comes in, right? Mm -hmm. So, so she's a motorcycle accident victim, seventeen. Uh, she's, you know, been drinking and, and everything, and so she she got into a motorcycle accident, or she was riding on the back. Not sure which. Yeah, I didn't say. She, I'm not familiar with this injury severity score. I don't work in trauma, but I'm pretty sure that in the trauma world, um, as they say there, that's a pretty severe, mm -hmm. you know, multiple uh, trauma trauma injuries and stuff, mm -hmm. and multiple. Uh, bone fractures and breaks. So, so we, we kind of get that. And then when you and then the next uh, slide, I think you talked about her initial blood gases when she came in are actually surprisingly good, right? She actually came in. You can tell that her heart rate's up, of course, because she's lost mm -hmm. some blood, and of course she has adrenaline going. And then her, she's breathing very, very rapidly, and that's because, you know, she's got one lung that's probably down or, or mostly down. Yeah. But actually supporting herself at the moment. She comes into the ER and she has a 98%, you know, arterial saturation mm -hmm. on room air, which is which is pretty doggone good. So 
but she's five minutes into the ER, and that's when she really starts to uh, to crash. So uh, one thing I would point out is that right there, it shows you that the EMT people and the and the rescue people got her there, you know, with a little bit of time to spare, as opposed to bringing her in when she was already crashing. So yeah. five minutes into the ER, I guess she really starts to go downhill. Probably had too much blood loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too much blood loss. And so they. They have her on a vent, but you notice they only have the FiO2 at 40%, which I find kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder why they wouldn't have gone straight to 100. Maybe because her sat was so good, yeah. they didn't need to. Um, yeah, what are maybe your thoughts so. about that? Um, and then, uh, of course, I didn't detail everything in here, but then you know they talk about that immediately after she was uh, vented, that they had to go ahead and give her... Um, heavy fluid resuscitation, blood transfusion. Yeah. She was given two liters of crystalloid, five units of PRBCs um, for just one, being one hour in the ER. Then her blood pressure uh, from there suddenly dropped. Uh, so she had a, um, a very low mean pressure. Uh, uh, she had 66 over 39. Um, her heart rate uh, continued to increase. It's up to 130. They decided to start giving her norepi. Um, and then so they got back in the ER for an hour. You're saying, yes, that's what it says. The OR probably, right? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> and I think they were just doing, you know, active fluid resuscitation, um, at this point. And, um, I'm sure they expected her blood pressure to go ahead and come up, not drop, but it did uh, indeed um, drop. I wonder, you know, where she was bleeding. It sounds like, um, it might have been internal. So, yes. you know, they must have had a quick a quick uh, bedside chest x-ray, mm-hmm. and they saw that the right side um, lung was down, and I guess they decided to put a, a chest tube in, right? And yes. that's what it looks like there. Yes. But the, apparently they were able to kind of, oxygenation-wise, it felt like it was okay at 40%. Then it was all about fluid resuscitation. Okay, so I'd like to go on and, and to your next and see. So now i got a good idea kind of where mm-hmm. what happened here a little bit. Well, and then just, just to continue further just a little bit since we're already kind of in some of the details. Um, after they've given her the two liters of crystalloid, five units of PRBCs, her blood pressure is continuing to drop. They transfused her with another five liters of crystalloid and additional five units of PRBCs, 10 units of FFP. And then she was evaluated with um, a CT for the brain, uh, abdomen, uh, pelvis, facial bones, and chest. Um, the ER physicians decided that she should undergo emergency a surgical procedure on her left femur fracture in both mandibles. So she must have been bleeding severely in the, those particular areas. Well, that's also all that I was wondering. is What did she actually go to surgery for? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm not a, an orthopedic or, or a trauma expert, but I, I, I would wonder... You know, if you have a large bone breaks like a femur, how much internal bl- blood bleeding does does that produce? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in your bone marrow where you're, yep. where you're manufacturing an awful lot of blood normally is in your bone marrow. When you break a, a large bone like that, I wonder what the uh, implications are for, for blood loss. Because it's not talking about, you know, a, um, a large artery that's been severed or anything. Right. There may have been, they may not have. Known yeah, they don't. The they don't note it if it is. But it sure sounds like she's pouring out somewhere because they are 
they are pouring it in. You know, five liters of crystalloid. That's practically her whole blood volume. In fact, it is. Yeah, her, for someone that small. Kilograms, mm -hmm. She was on a little 90, you know, 98-pound, 17-year-old uh, girl. And she doesn't have a whole lot of blood. She doesn't, I don't think she has five liters, I can tell you that. So they're, they're re revamping or uh, recycling her uh, uh, entire blood volume there probably a couple times over there just in the ER. Yeah, and then they, they say that uh, 25 minutes after the start of surgery, her blood pressure drops from 130 over 100 to 78 over 40. She got high doses of norepi. Heart rate continued to increase. It's up to 151. Her, uh, her saturations are 75%. Continued to get, this is where they really started noticing those frothy, uh, watery secretions from the ET. They ventilated her manually, but her um, sats were only 52%. So this is their decision time when they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. She has, she uh, gets sudden cardiac arrest. It took them 45 minutes, but then she um, came back. And then they were so afraid that she was going to have a cardiac arrest event again. That's when they decided to do the VV ECMO. Yeah, so, so stepping back just a little bit, you, you've seen this 100 times. We all have in perfusion and even other fields is that the patient is, is bleeding internally, but, but the pressure of the tissues around that area and the skin are kind of acting as a compression. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you make an incision yeah, just and release that pressure, now everywhere. you bleed even worse, right? So you're at a catch-22. You need to get in there to repair some things so that you can start getting these under control. But the first thing happens is you take a major step backwards because now you open up the uh, floodgates for, for whatever's bleeding mm -hmm. to just flow even more freely. It sounds like, you know, that that's sort of what happened here. So that that's expected. I, I think that, yeah. that sort of makes sense. So then they got into a real uh, volume situation in the uh, in the OR. But, you know, with all that crystalloid, I know they were putting in blood as well. They, I'm sure at a trauma center like this, they had the rapid infuser devices going. But you lose your hemoglobin, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you, your hemoglobin counts <clears throat> as quickly as you can get blood in, but you're trying to put in coagulation factors, you're trying to put in albumin and crystalloid. You're diluting your hemoglobin, you know, almost faster than you're able to get, get mm -hmm. it. So your delivery of oxygen now is... It's starting to go down, and it affects your your heart, you know, oxygenation, and and your, of course your brain. You worry about so so they had that struggle in the, in the OR, but I guess they went ahead and did ECMO in the OR. It yeah, like. it, it yeah. sounds like they went ahead and did it in the <coughs> OR. Um, let's see, I'm just looking at that table. Let me throw it up again. Let's see, so we can talk about a little more in detail. So it looks like. Even after she had uh, returned uh, to uh, spontaneous circulation, um, you know, her PCO2, it looks like it was really, you know, uh, obviously the O2 is down, but the PCO2 was, you know, 115. And even after they initiated ECMO, took it a minute to go ahead and come back down. It looks like uh, they don't say how long, it just says immediately after ECMO um, initiation, down to 60 for the PCO2 and up to 60 for the O2. Um, and then their, their d discussion is just mainly talking about um, the uh, new growing evidence suggesting that ECMO as a rescue therapy in trauma cases. And, you know, really discussing that although it's highly invasive, that the application of it uh, can be successful and that you can be successful with heparin-free when you have these patients that are um, have coagulopathies. 
Um, she was, uh, let's see, where do they talk about it? I think it's back here. Uh, her activated uh, clotting time was 510, and all other coagulation tests show extremely prolonged times. Looks like um, when her circulation came back uh, spontaneously after the CPR, um, her PT was 27 and her INR was 2.57. Yeah, and you have a you know you have a dilutional uh, coagulopathy going on. You have all that crystalloid you're trying to replace blood products, and um, I mean, you know, when you get to that one column there, CPR 20 minutes, and then um, the one after that return of a, a, a spontaneous circulation, you look at the pH of 6.85, and most people consider uh, 6.9 and below incompatible with life. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you're instantly, instantly dead, but you're not going to stay there for very long. But again, being 17 and being probably a pretty healthy, she doesn't have... Uh, you know, she's tiny and probably relatively fit. She's able to withstand, uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes probably of, yeah. of a six, low 6.9 pH. So so that's just a testament to uh, to youth. And, and also they, now I don't do trauma ECMO, Pammy. Sounds like maybe you don't either. No. And that is a subspecialty of ECMO altogether. You know, people that do trauma and do trauma ECMO are really, are really way, way out there on a limb. You know, you're, you've got a patient who's, who's, totally bleeding and probably going to continue to bleed and now you're going to put them on an ECMO circuit and uh, you know desperate times call call for desperate measures however there is you know uh, there there is an absolute application for trauma ECMO and there's absolute success that that is and, and can be derived from trauma ECMO but you really better have your uh, your wits about you. you better really know what you're doing because you you can't really afford to anticoagulate uh, you can see the patient. You said the ACT was 500. I mean, you know, what what more do you want to do to uh, to be feel like your your problem is not going to be clotting on ECMO. That's not going to be your problem. Your right. problem is going to be aggravating the present bleeding that's already overwhelming you. So you have to do it to keep her alive. The the, the heart and the brain were gonna were gonna uh, be so hypoxic that they were gonna uh, uh, die. And they 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 probably had femoral accesses. My my thought too. You know, they they yeah. were operating on the femur. Right, and right. they probably had a, a cut down right there, ready to go with yeah. with a femfem VV, probably right there on one leg, and they probably were able to do it relatively quickly. And uh, yeah, it says a right femoral vein. They were able to get a 19 French access cannula, um, and then uh, a 21 French uh, return cannula. So yeah, so you know she went she went to a good she went to a good center because they had it all. They had it all ready to go, mm -hmm. you know, and so that was a, a testament too, too. So, so I, let's see where your slide are. I want to, I want to walk through this a little more and see how okay. how this turns out. But that's a pretty good slide because it tells you, you know, um, you know, right there in the last column, you're, you're blowing the CO2 down from 115 to 60, and I'm sure the uh, perfusionist cranked that sweep and mm -hmm. and and really started reversing because you have a severe respiratory acidosis along with a metabolic acidosis. So you've got two things you're working on there. So, yeah, okay, so I see what happened now. They're on ECMO. Mm -hmm. um, and, and real quick, let me just uh, interrupt you for one second, John. I'm sorry. I believe we have a caller. Oh, great, okay. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, we have. Oh, it's Joe. Hi, Joe's our caller. It's Joe, it's all Joe. right. Your you call. spin the wheel? Uh, hey, guys. Are you trying to get us spin the so, wheel? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. 
So, uh, so let me just throw this out if I can. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in the traffic. I've got an hour and thirty minutes to get uh, from here to there. So mm-hmm. I'm in the Houston traffic. But very quickly, I think John brought up an excellent point. One, you've got youth on your side. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, I think that they recognized she was bleeding. It sounds to me like they just poured volume into her, which I think caused two problems. One, I think she they blew it overloaded her heart. They put her over the Starling curve, and she went into failure, pulmonary edema, and that's why that happened. And I think that her coagulopathy is likely secondary to dilutional coagulopathy. Mm-hmm. They were pouring in crystalloid. They were pouring in red cells. They probably got way behind on platelets and factors, plasma, so cryo, so forth and so on. And then she started bleeding. I think that the fact that she was only on ECMO for three days, and I think that if you look at the algorithm for ECMO decision, that if they thought her cardiac dysfunction was secondary primarily to hypoxemia, then putting her on BV ECMO made the most sense. So those are my thoughts so far, other than to compliment you guys that you're doing a fantastic job, and I'm actually listening to you in the car, in Houston traffic, and uh, enjoying the show. So keep going on, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Yeah, yeah so, Joe so, makes yeah, an excellent you know, point about um, the dilutional coagulopathy. They don't mention that they run a tag um, or anything like that that's going to give you a little bit of that information um, to try to figure out what's causing the coagulopathy. Um, so it sounds like they just ran your standard PTT, uh, PT, and INR, and I guess an ACT. Yeah, and um, I, I think... Um, you don't need to be a, a you know a, a cardiologist to realize that a 17 year old young girl probably doesn't have a heart problem. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That if she is uh, not being able to keep up her blood pressure, it's because uh, she doesn't have volume and uh, and that she's not oxygenating if her if her if she's hypercapnic and she's a low PO2. So yeah, they did VV. I suppose they could have done VA, um, but they did VV knowing that you know this. This young girl needs uh, needs oxygenation. She, she's hypercapnic. She needs ventilation. And if we can get that turned around, but yeah, I was I was wondering too when you said that they started getting frothy suction mm-hmm. out of the out of the, uh, the out of the ET tube. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that uh, wow. I mean, you know, usually you have to have left ventricular failure and right sided uh, good 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 flow out of your right side ventricle and poor out of your left side and build up pulmonary edema. But you know her heart was working was working well, I'm sure. So they probably just had fluid going in so fast that it yeah. just sort of uh, filled up the venous side and, and, and poured right into the lungs. It was I probably mean, almost like a flash pulmonary edema, I would think. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, just looking at what they gave her, you know, in the initial looks like what about an hour was uh, seven liters of crystalloid, ten RBCs, ten um, FFPs. Oh. That's a lot for a tiny little person, no matter yeah. how much you're bleeding. That's a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm not faulting them. I think no. they were in a desperate situation. I'm sure they were just trying to keep their blood pressure up. So they were, they were, they were being aggressive. And you know, you walk a fine line. You know, you, the pressure is low. The patient's pouring out, and uh, and you need to get volume in. So it, it's not terribly difficult 
to overdo it, you know, and suddenly the, the surgeon gets control of the bleeding, is able to clamp a few things or what have you, and then all of a sudden uh, the bleeding uh, suddenly slows down a lot, but the anesthesiologist, and maybe the perfusionist too, by the way, with the cell saver or whatever they were doing, rapid infuser, are, are still pouring blood in, you know, so uh, it wouldn't be that hard to do on a small, mm -hmm. small, small B, uh, BSA person like this. So Exactly. What was the, uh, what was the next uh, segment there, Tammy? I wanted to see how it was. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so we went to just the conclusions where, you know, we, they, they, this was their major conclusion was just that VV ECMO can be used, you know, in a trauma, um, environment for res, uh, resuscitative therapy. And, uh, if they have coagulopathies that you can do it without heparin, you know, yeah. they had a severe hypercapnia and acidosis for greater than an hour, um, during the CPR and this, uh, ECMO saved her, and she was discharged from the hospital. I want to say it was 33 days. Let's see. Hold on. 33 days of ICU care. Then she went, uh, uh, during that time, three additional sur surgeries, but she was discharged after a full 128 days of uh, in, with her hospitalization and rehab um, therapy. So it was a success. Yeah, sure was. I mean, uh, she, she, she probably will. Um, she'll have some scars, and she'll have. A, she's probably got a handful of uh, yeah. uh, steel pins and rods and what have you. But she may actually uh, go on to live a full, you know, full life. Um, she didn't go into any organ failure. Again, you know, a testament to to youth, probably on that mm -hmm. one. She was able to withstand the uh, inflammatory response that the ECMO circuit was going to uh, instill in her and no really uh, de detrimental effects from that apparently and as soon as they got the bleeding under control you're telling me she was on ECMO for three days so she was then three able days. to support herself mm -hmm. you know cardiopulmonary wise the lungs uh, relieved themselves of the uh, of the uh, uh, pulmonary edema they were seeing in the in the OR and her heart was beating fine and after three days they could come off ECMO I mean that's pretty good because a lot of times you spend one day of ECMO just, you know, weaning the person and, mm -hmm. and, and doing the sweet trials and stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, pretty well, impressive, actually. It, it is. It was, I thought it was a really interesting uh, case study, and it, and it had a nice uh, result, which always makes it even more fun to talk about, really. Um, let's talk about a little bit. I, I You talked a lot about, um, in our spring conference, about the, you had a whole talk about um, anticoagulation and heparin-free ECMO. So I didn't really want to get into that part of our article because we've kind of already covered that. But I thought it'd be worth um, talking about just our inclusion-exclusion and kind of the impact that COVID-19 has had on that um, for ECMO. So that's what we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time talking about now. <laughs> Okay, so I used as a guide, um, and we've, t we've touched on this a little bit before, but not in this much detail, I don't think. Um, the ELSO guide that they put out um, in 2019, they had to put together some interim guidelines for um, how we're going to deal with this COVID-19 crisis and pandemic in relationship to ECMO support. So this is the... Um, I, th I believe they called it the interim document, a con you know, consistent consensus document from international group um, of uh, interdisciplinary ECMO providers. 
Okay, so this was uh, published in ASIO in uh, uh, 2020. I'm sorry, I lost the month. It was right at the be middle of 2020, I believe. And it was, uh, let's see, so here, I sort of just skipped ahead. I didn't really read, you know, go through all of the, um, why they're talking about why they're going to have to manage all of these things. I just wanted to kind of get to the parts where they talk about inclusion and, and exclusion for ECMO. So if you look at this first slide, it talks about indications for VV ECMO. And um, they're speaking specifically about COVID-19, but I thought what they said was um, really interesting because now we've seen it play out a little bit. You know, we've had a year of this already. And it says here that you should not deviate from the usual indications for uh, per ELSO or any other existing guidelines. They still um, are recommending um, to follow those guidelines with these additional guidelines for COVID-19. They recommend against initiation of ECMO before maximizing traditional therapies for ARDS, in particular proning. And, you know, we were seeing that quite a bit um, for a while. That, that was the thing. You proned them, and then if they didn't do well in proning, then you went to ECMO. But I don't know about you, John, but we're, we're starting to see that maybe we're jumping ahead on that because it seems like they're trying to get people um, on uh, a little more quickly. They also talked about that, uh, you know, they don't really understand ARDS in relationship to um, COVID-19. It's still evolving. There's going to be a debate about atypical nature of ARDS in these particular patients, um, that the, you know, vent strategies should be, a best vent, vent strategy should be applied, um, that uh, vent management before ECMO uh, may be significant bearing on outcomes, and I think we're all seeing that, you know, how those patients are being managed, what kind of pressures, what kind of tidal volumes, how long are they being managed on the vent before, you know, people are making the decision to go ahead and switch over to ECMO support. And then they talk about that um, mobile ECMO is unavailable considering referring patients if, I'm sorry, if mobile ECMO is unavailable, consider referring these patients to ECMO centers very early so that um, you're getting them over there before their, um, you know, PaO2 gets uh, really too low and their uh, FiO2 gets really high. Um, and they're recommending that, um, you know, anything below 100, you should probably go ahead and refer. And if the decision to transport is made too, made too late, that these patients are definitely going to be too unstable to transport. And that assumes that you have an ECMO center that is not already overwhelmed that right. will take the patient. <laughs> right, and I'm gonna to get to that too. Um, just on the other side of this, this is uh, talking a little bit about VA ECMO. So it talked, to, um, just talking a little bit about um, that uh, indications and in patient selection for VA ECMO should not deviate the existing guidelines um, that consider VA ECMO in selected patients with, uh, you know, refractory cardiogenic shock, um, persistent tissue hypoperfusion, um, systemic blood pressure less than 90, um, while receiving, of course, uh, various supports, 
the need for hybrid configurations such as VVA, um, you know, is relatively infrequent, but it should be considered um, for experienced centers with doing this for patients with ARDS that also are suspected to have acute stress or septic cardiomyopathy. Um, patients requiring VA ECMO support who incidentally test positive for COVID-19 but are not thought to be critically ill due to the virus should be considered for ECMO support in the usual fashion. All right. Uh, okay, yeah, go ahead. All right, so here's uh, the just their conventional VV um, indications uh, for ARDS uh, for ECMO. And it just goes through kind of the um, decision chart here. Uh, I think it's similar to what has been put out before, but it's, um, it's been modified, um, uh, I believe, a little bit for COVID-19. You can see the first step. As soon as you have a PAO2 of less than 150, that you are strongly recommended to prone. Then from there, you know, recommending a uh, uh, par a paralysis and appropriate PEEPs and considered, uh, you know, inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. And then if those, uh, you know, are not enough, and then you can continue on here and you can see uh, we can work our way all the way through um, to indicating for ECMO or continue with the same management. And then also, you know, you'll see right there in the decision tree, right in the middle is do they have anything that is contraindicated for ECMO? So we're s still supposed to really be, according to ELSO, be looking at the contraindications for ECMO. And we know that those kind of went out the window for some parameters as this pandemic went on. Okay, looking a little bit at the, um, just their list of indications and contraindications, um, they specifically have adapted this for COVID-19, but it will follow most of the regular parameters that they've already established. And so, of course, it's an age greater than 65, obesity, um, BMI greater than or equal to 40, um, you know, immunocompromised, um, advanced chronic underlying systolic, systolic heart failure, and we can just continue to go down the list. Those are all relative. Now, absolute contraindications. Advanced age, um, if they score on the clinical frailty scale greater than or equal to three. Ventilation greater than 10 days, which I think we've all decided that that's probably too long. We've been trying to follow, you know, less than seven days. And most recently, as soon as they're intubated, you know, a day or two, if it doesn't look like it's going to go their way, they're going ahead and talking about ECMO on a lot of these patients. Uncontrolled diabetes or other end organ dysfunction, um, advanced lung disease, uh, let's see, some, any of the other sort of interesting ones. Um, of course, uh, severe acute neurologic injury, uncontrolled bleeding, any contraindications to anticoagulation, which of course, a lot of these patients are very coagulopathic, and so they're bleeding a lot or they're not bleeding enough and <laughs> they're throwing clots. So that's been really interesting to see how that plays out. 
and then, of course, any ongoing uh, CPR. Okay, and here was the, um, the contingency uh, for, oh, I think I clicked one too many. Let's go back one. There we go. Contingency for how to manage these ECMOs because, again, they didn't know how busy we were going to get, right? This came out in the middle of the year. So conventional capacity, you just, you know, you, everything's running fine. You just continue with your normal uh, ECMO selection. Um, you're able to offer all sorts of ECMO, VVVA, um, you know, ECMO for non-COVID uh, and eCPR wherever it's normally offered. Then uh, it, once you get to capacity tier one, you know, you are having to expand your capacity, you're triaging uh, to maximize your resources. You're still offering, um, you know, VVVA, ECMO um, with in younger COVID-19 patients with single organ failure and then uh, being careful with your use for non-COVID um, patients, and then eCPR not to be offered. So, you know, really just kind of holding on to your resources there. Then when we get to the next plan, we've got the capacity tier two. Um, you know, your capacity is saturated. You need to have very restrictive ECMO criteria. You're prioritizing your non-COVID. Uh, ECMO candidates, your VV is only younger single organ failure, your VA and eCPR are not offered at all is what the recommendation is. Then once you're to your crisis capacity, you know, you, you may not even be able to um, offer ECMO. Maybe you're, you're out of resources completely, you're out of machines, you're out of people, um, you know, you're triaging your ICU admissions, you're ceasing all uh, futile care to create capacity in the system. Now, I don't think we ever reached the crisis capacity, but I, I would be interested to hear what you think about, um, especially in your busy center, John, if you think you reached uh, capacity tier two or if you were just somewhere around tier one. Well, we, we've never not been at least in tier one, I can tell you that, but we were I would say uh, one with one caveat there is that we never eliminated the possibility of eCPR. So I'm not right. sure <clears throat> where they throw that in. I mean, if we had a, a patient who was on on the bubble and uh, on the floor in a, in a unit, uh, you know, uh, on the bubble of needing ECMO or not, and we had the met the criteria of age and whatnot, and that person went downhill suddenly, uh, we went up with uh, we still do go up with with whatever equipment we had available and put that patient on. So I'm not sure why they're recommending uh, no eCPR if you have the capability and a patient is there in your hospital. But yeah, we're definitely, uh, we didn't get to crisis mode, I don't think, but we, um, you know, we're referred, so many centers refer to us and uh, we get, uh, well, I should say we, the, the, the ECMO surgeons here get calls almost every day that they have to turn down. We just can't take, you know, we, we've had to tell for a week or two at a time even more that we just can't take any any outside patients. We have enough of too many of our own and, and some on the bubble so close in-house in that um, it, it doesn't make sense. But if, as soon as we have the opportunity, we, we take some more in from the outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I know we were for a while, you know, getting someone off ECMO um, or maybe they were um, having their 
uh, care discontinued, and no sooner than that machine had been cleaned and put away did we get another call of, you know, in-house patients, not even necessarily transfer patients, needing that machine. And several that were kind of waiting in the wings uh, where we were, you know, at capacity on what we had available at the moment, and everyone kind of wondering, are the, you know, who's going to get better and who's not? Because we have a whole line of people waiting, you know, to uh, possibly get this kind of support and need this kind of support. Um, so it looks like we got a lot of comments going on here. It looks like uh, Joe and Jay Cam, I don't know your first name, sorry, um, are having a, a, a really lengthy conversation here. So I, I'm going to leave them to that, but it sounds like we've generated something that they're interested in. They're talking about the PF ratio and um, having it yeah, be less um, than 150 is what they're discussing right now. Well, um, I don't know if you could, are you, are you, do you have any more slides? Are you, are you done? Yeah, no, those? actually I do. So let me go ahead and just click through yeah. the end here. Okay. This I thought was really interesting. This was actually at the front of the consensus article that was uh, guidelines that were issued, but I put it at the end because I thought it would give us something to talk about. And I'm just going to um, read you not the whole thing, but just something kind of towards the end. So it says, uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. These guidelines are not meant to replace sound clinical judgment or specialist cons consultation, but rather to strengthen provision and clinical management of ECMO, spe specifically in the context of COVID-19. I thought that was really great because so many times, you know, we're looking for these guidelines for inclusion or exclusion, and we really want them to lay it out for us. But as nice as it is to have something to, um, you know, if you have an overwhelming amount of patients needing care, something to help guide you. But really, it comes down to, you know, the clinician, the physician, you know, the cardiovascular surgeon, whomever it is who's taking care of these patients to really try to determine, is this someone from my clinical judgment that we need to go ahead and do or not do? And I feel like sometimes they've, they've gotten that right and they really, you know, took someone that maybe fell outside the parameters and we've had successes. And then sometimes even when they've fallen in the guidelines, they weren't really good candidates, but we put them on anyway and, you know, without success. And so I think it's important to remember that, the, you know, all of these guidelines are, are great to have. But it really comes down to, you know, using the guidelines as guidelines, but clinical judgment needs to be the most important thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think they hit the mark on, on most things. Uh, one of your first slides, uh, I want to have a talking point because they talk about um, age, you know, greater than 65. We, we pretty much stick to that. In fact, we may even, I think we use age. 60 and below. I don't think we go as high as 65, but you know, the thing about all this and the BMI of 40, I mean, we, we in every place that I know of has to go over BMI of 40. I mean, that, that's just, you guys, that's probably your routine patient is over 40 yes. BM and way over 40 BMI, over 40. but you, you, you can't, you can't hold yourself to that when you have a 29 or 39 year old, you know, young adult with the two kids at home, the BMI is over 40 is 45 or 50, you know, 
I don't think you can say, oh, well, we're not going to do ECMO because they've got COVID. You know, um, they try to give you some guidelines. I mean, I think you have to use them as, as rough guidelines and use your own. You know, you're in a war zone. There's a fog of war. You know, there's, uh, there's things that you're going to have to go outside of and do and then and one day look back and say, well, you know, I'm glad we did that. Or maybe now we see maybe we shouldn't. But you can't just be uh, you have to be very you have to be as judicious as you can. But you really have to stretch some of these boundaries. Otherwise, you're just not going to you're not serving some of these people. Well, if you don't make some exceptions, I think. And I think we all see that, you know, to some extent. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think gives people some some good guidelines, at least to kind of go by. And um, oh, and the other thing was, you know, they're saying, you know, to, to make sure you've done everything you can, including proning, mm-hmm. before you use ECMO. And so here, here's what my talking point was, because that was one of your early slides there. As, you know, so where, where are we between doing it too soon and doing it too late? I mean, it's such a narrow window there. And I think we've actually, maybe in the beginning of COVID, we did it maybe a little bit too early. And I think now a lot of times we're doing it a little bit too late, and we're having a lot less success because the patients that are going on ECMO now are, are pretty far down that line. They've been on the ventilator a while. They've been prone several days. They've, you know, they're, they're, they're wide out x-rays and CT, ground glass, opacification and whatnot is substantial. And now we go to ECMO and let's see, you know, and um, I think you guys have probably seen the same thing where uh, what you were saying about equipment becoming available Unfortunately, uh, a huge percentage they come available for the wrong reason. You know yeah, what I mean? right. Uh, I do think we're seeing a little bit of um, a swing here where we had, in the beginning, uh, they were responding quickly. They were doing a lot of proning once on ECMO. And then we started seeing, well, maybe we should prolong it. And so then we were waiting longer periods of time to put them on ECMO. But um, most recently, in the past couple of months, all of our patients have been early triggers, maybe one or two outliers uh, that got transferred in after the fact, after they were already vented for, you know, a week. But quite a few of ours, um, it's, you know, vented and even maybe the same day put on ECMO or if not the next day. And we're waiting to see how those are going to turn out. It's still early um, in our care for these patients. But I'm, I'm not really sure why we had better success rates in the beginning, that's for sure. Um, the, the sort of second surge that, you know, has died down for us a little bit here um, was, you know, very unsuccessful, as Joe has mentioned. I think at some point he's going to uh, give a talk on the actual numbers that we saw for success rates, and they, they really weren't great for the second surge at all. Yeah, and, you know, we're up against a severe, you know, uh, resource, uh, you know, constraint. You know, you have so much equipment and, and so much personnel and so many rooms that you can put an ECMO patient in. You can't just scatter them all over the hospital. In our case, they have to be all in one unit where the CCM is ECMO specialized and the, uh, and the, the, the ECMO specialists and nurses are, are all, you know, in one place. And so you start spreading them out. We tried that for a while, and it worked. It was difficult. We had yeah. oh, such an overflow that we had two different units at ECMO, and that was really staff constraining. So it's gotten a little better. Uh, we expanded our ECMO unit, but um, you still have equipment constraints. You have to have backups. You can't just have every person 
on every right. equipment you have. You have to have backups, uh, so many backups for, for how many patients you have because things do go wrong and you have to suddenly switch it out. Um, well, so, you know, we you experienced know, um, that too, John. Yeah, sour hour a lot of times. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We did experience that as well. You know, we, of course, had more than one uh, hospital where we were supporting ECMO, but even within one hospital, at one point when we were, you know, really at a, a high point in the second surge, we had two units. Now, thankfully, they were stacked right on top of each other, but they were a floor apart because the one unit was where we were keeping the COVID ECMOs, and that became full. Uh, so then we were on the floor above it, and they, you know, they sectioned off uh, some rooms up there for COVID. And then we had a regular non-COVID VA ECMO, which was, you know, way across in another building within the same hospital in the CV ICU unit. So we actually, within one facility, had three different floors, uh, locations that we were managing. And that's tough to do, especially when you have three or four patients on each floor. You're, you're running up and down, and there's no way to even get to the CV ICU in a a fast enough turnaround so it might as well have been across the street you know and saving the equipment for that you know we had to reserve equipment for uh you know these ECMOs that can occur with the surgeries that are going on and even though we had patients who were you know lined up and, and doctors wanting them to to go ahead and let's use that other machine let's use the last few machines to go ahead and put some of these uh, VV ECMO patients on there for COVID, but we didn't. And thankfully we didn't because you never know when you're going to have something come up unexpected like a VA ECMO from surgery or a TAVR that didn't go quite as well. I mean, I know that a lot of places have been doing them for a while and mostly go without complications, but it's not 100% and we saw that. Exactly. You can't just uh, you just can't allocate all your equipment away to the uh, to the to the ECMO COVID patient and have nothing for other things. It, it's impossible. Um, you 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 have disaster on your hands. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of tavers, and you know they go very well. And every now and then you have to you know you have to go on pump. And uh, same thing with our lung transplants. Some of our lung transplants <clears throat> need to come out on a on a cardio health. Some of our heart transplants might need to come out of a heart on a on a on a cardio or or an ECMO device. You can't just give them all away to um, to the COVID patients. And of course, you have to have backups in case there's a equipment failure, which which you're going to see because they're going to be on ECMO a long time. That's another thing. You designate your equipment. It's not two or three days. You know, it's two three weeks, month or two. That equipment's running on a on an ECMO patient that may get to a point where they're not coming off ECMO. They're, right. they're, on, they're at the end of the uh, Bridge to Nowhere road, and now we're, we're stuck. You've seen that many times. Oh, so yeah. the equipment and consideration is a very, very serious one. I mean, we had, you know, one patient. It was such a sad story. You know, went the normal two to three weeks and kind of thought we were going to see something, and, and we didn't. And then it was, you know, a real sad family situation. They had already lost other family members to COVID. And so it was a very, very difficult situation to be able to get this family to a place where they really understood that this ECMO was not going to do what we needed it to do, what they wanted it to do for this patient. 
And that was another two and a half weeks of support, you know. So we were rounding out six weeks with this patient that we had known for at least for sure for two weeks or maybe three that we were going nowhere. Real quick, I'm just going to break away. And uh, Jeff is the person who's commenting with Joe. So thanks for letting me know, Jeff. Um, Joe just wanted to remind us that, you know, ECMO is not without its own risk and complications. And, and, you know, that's so true. Um, And uh, he also said, and, you know, the outcomes were way worse uh, than influenza or aspiration-associated ARDS. And I think you can agree with that too, John. I think I think all of our previous non-COVID <laughs> patients uh, probably had a better survival. I don't have numbers in front of me. I haven't seen numbers at our institution, but it doesn't take a rocket science scientist to, to look around and see how many per week, sometimes even sometimes more that we're turning off. You know, I mean, anecdotally, and anecdotally, you you just know that. Uh, this story is not a, not a good one. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's it's probably significantly worse than our flu A, flu B, aspiration, asthma, uh, you know, near drowning, you name it. Uh, I think that all of those would we would crave for those days of success. Yeah. With COVID, yeah. Well, uh, Joe, Jeff, do you guys have any more comments you'd like to talk about? Um, uh, Joe's talking about. Uh, so 60%, I think he's referring to influenza or aspiration-associated ARDS, 60% versus a 20% survival with COVID is, uh, I believe, what he's referencing there. But if uh, we don't have any more comments on this, uh, we'll go ahead and I'm just going to read something from this ELSO um, guidelines that may be a little bit uplifting that we can kind of close out our discussion today about uh uh, ECMO uh, implications and contraindications, inclusion, exclusion, and how COVID-19 um, has sort of impacted that, followed those guidelines, not followed those guidelines a little bit. And we still don't really know, you know, uh, if, if any of it even made much of a difference. So um, there was a very nice foreword written by the president of ELSO, Mark T. Ogino. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He goes into, you know, kind of a a whole thing about it's spring and there's flowers blooming and uh, he's elated, you know, to see the flowers coming out, but he knows that the season is going to be like, uh, unlike any other. So this is last spring. Um, But he closes this with a, you know, a really nice thing after talking about, you know, all the unknowns we're going to face, how frontline healthcare workers you know, just uh, are, are going to be uh, fighting the battle with these uh, patients, trying to take care of them. But he ends with, the resilience of the human spirit will prevail. Spring will continue to thrill us. So- society will adapt and endure. I thought that was a really nice way to end um, our discussion here today.